Hi, everyone. I wanted to remind you of a must read. This is a book that you have to have on your bookshelf. It is called The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. He is able to help you make important decisions, give you some guidance on which path to take, and you get to learn how he tapped into the wisdom and power of the unseen worlds for guidance and inspiration. I had the opportunity to interview him, and he was a lovely guest on the Path 11 podcast, episode 343. Check it out. Listen to the podcast. Go buy the book. Again, it's The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. To find out more information, go to his website, carlgreer.com. That's spelled C-A-R-L-G-R-E-E-R.com. everyone. Welcome to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and I am thrilled to have our guest, Bruce Lipton, on the podcast today. Um, so excited. I have reached out to Bruce's team for about three years now, just trying to get him to come on the podcast, and it happened to work out this year in 2018. He had some time and some space in his schedule to be able to fit us in. So I am really excited about this interview, and And for those of you who are not familiar with Bruce's work, I wanted to tell you a little bit about him. So he is a scientist and lecturer. He received his PhD at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville in 1971. He served as an associate professor of anatomy at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. Lipton's research on mechanisms controlling cell behavior employed cloned human stem cells. In addition, he lectured in cell biology, histology, and embryology. Bruce resigned his tenured position to pursue independent research integrating quantum physics with cell biology. His breakthrough studies on the cell membrane, the skin of the cell, revealed that the behavior and health of the cell was controlled by the environment. Findings that were in direct contrast with prevailing dogma that life is controlled by genes. Lipton returned to academia as a research fellow at Stanford University School of Medicine to test his hypothesis from 1987 to 1992. His ideas concerning environmental control were substantiated in two major scientific publications. The new research revealed the biochemical pathways connecting the mind and body and provided insight into the molecular basis of consciousness and the future of human evolution. Bruce has taken his award-winning medical school lectures to the public and is currently a popular keynote speaker and workshop presenter on topics of conscious parenting and the science of complementary medicine. So we are thrilled to have him on the show today to talk about how if we change the environment of our body, then we are able to change the output of the DNA. So this is going to be a great conversation. And before we get to our interview with him, I wanted to also let you guys know that we are going to be doing our first live stream on June 13th, 6 p.m. on CBD oil. And this kind of goes hand in hand a little bit with this discussion that I'm going to have with Bruce Lipton because there's a lot of research out there that talks about how CBD oil can bring our body back into the state of homeostasis. And when we are taking CBD oil, we are basically changing the environment 
within the body. And it is known to have healed many people of many different ailments. So it's along the same topic. And we thought that you guys would actually enjoy that live stream. And we will have that link available to you in the show notes. If you would like to attend in the comfort of your own home, uh, go ahead and pre-order the ticket. And we will see you on June 13th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you'll be able to get the facts about CBD oil. And this is going to be presented by a company by the name of Known Serum. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to our show. I am so happy to be here because uh, I have a wonderful story to share with your community because this is an exciting time, and uh, I, I love to talk about it because we're facing an evolution right now. Yes, we are, and I am excited that you're here with us. I have been trying to reach you for about three years, and so I'm so gl- glad that uh, we were able to catch you this year. I know you've been a very busy man, um, but I actually came across your work back in 2012. We have a shared mutual friend, uh, Thomas Campbell, who is a oh, former yes. nuclear physicist. Yep. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we uh, were introduced to your work actually through him, and I've kind of been following you ever since. So I was hoping that we can talk a little bit about what is in your book, The Biology of Belief, which is now in the 10th anniversary edition. I can't believe it, but you can't either. (laughs) No, I'm so excited about it because it also plots the evolution of the planet in regard to how many more people over the years, the book continues to sell. And the relevance to me, what that really reflects is that there's more and more people people uh, opening up to another understanding of life. And to me, that's really uh, uh, very exciting because we, we have to do something right now because we're facing an evolutionary, uh, uh, well, complex problem here of mass extinction. And, uh, and the issue is very important is we are the ones that are creating the problem and therefore we are the ones that are going to have to help resolve the problem. And that's the wake up call. Yeah, and I do not want to assume that all of our listeners know of you and the work that you've done. And some people, this might be the first time that they're actually hearing the word epigenetics and being introduced to your work. (laughs) Uh, Believe it or not, I was like, you know, really excited to know that we had this interview coming on. And, you know, I told one of my best friends, I said, oh, I'm going to get the chance to interview Bruce Lipton. And I'm like, have you ever heard of him? She's like, no. I'm like, what? How could you be my best friend? And you have not heard of his work yet. So I had to go and like flood her with a bunch of, you know, you tubes and stuff like that. So it just blows my mind to think that people are actually being introduced to you for the first time in 2018. But so if you don't mind, I'd like to take the beginning part of our discussion and bring our listeners back when a lot of this stuff began. Well, it was around, actually started in 1967. So uh, 50 years ago, I was doing experiments on cloning stem cells. And 50 years ago, there were just a handful of us in the entire planet that even knew what a stem cell was. And I was at that, you know, right place, right time. And I was cloning stem cells. So let's define a stem cell as an embryonic cell in your body. And I say, well, why don't I call it an embryonic cell? Because you're not an embryo. So the the moment before you're born, I can do a biopsy, show you a cell and say, here's an embryonic cell. And a uh, moment after you're born, I do the same biopsy, look at the same cell and say, oh, here's a stem cell. I just want people to understand that stem cell and embryonic cells are equivalent. Why do we have embryonic cells in our body? And the first thing is simply this, our, our body is made out of 50 trillion cells. And the significance that po- most people don't understand is the living entities, the individual entities are the cells. 
A human body, by its definition, is a community of 50 trillion interconnected, harmoniously, helpfully, uh, uh, cells working together to create our lives. Uh, the significance is that every, every day we lose hundreds of billions of cells from natural aging. Skin cells are sloughing off, hair is falling out, new hair is coming in. Uh, the digestive tract, the entire lining of cells on the digestive tract, which is like nearly a trillion cells, are replaced every three days. And there's a point to say, well, wait, if I keep losing all the cells, where are the new cells coming from? I say, that's why we still have stem cells in our body. The embryonic cells are there to replace any of the cells from skin to brain uh, that are, are dying and have to be replaced. Uh, stem cells uh, are doing that job. So I have these embryonic cells, multi-potential. They can become anything. And I put one cell in a Petri dish by itself, and it divides every 10 or 12 hours. So first there's one, then two, four, eight, 16, and doubles. And at the end of a week, 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. However, the most important point is they all came from one parent. So that meant I had 30,000 genetically identical cells in a Petri plate. And what I did, and here's the experiment, and my whole life changed on this experiment because at the time I was doing the experiments, I was also teaching uh, students uh, about genetics and how genes turn on and off and control life and talking that story, which most people have been programmed with. Uh, so I'm talking that in a classroom, but in a laboratory, what I did is I put genetically identical cells. I split the 30,000 cells into three Petri dishes, so each had 10,000 cells, but all of the cells were identical. And what I did was change the, um, the composition of the growth medium called culture medium. I said, well, what is culture medium? It's simply, it's a laboratory version of blood. So if I grow human cells, I see what human blood is made out of, and then I synthesize a version of that called culture medium and feed the cells in the plastic dish. So the interesting part about it is since I synthesized the culture medium, uh, I created three slightly different variations, just chemistry changes a little bit. And so each dish had genetically identical cells, but each dish had a different environment. And in culture dish A, environment A, the cells form muscle. And in culture dish B, in environment B, the cells form bone, and in the third dish, uh, environment C, the cells form fat cells. Well, there's a profound and immediate like, oh my God, what's this all about? And the answer is this, what controls the fate of the cell? Why should it be muscle or bone or fat or cartilage or skin? Why, what controls that? Uh, and we had always said, oh, genes control this. And it goes, no, no. In this case, all the cells had exactly the same genes. And yet they had different fates. I said, oh, the fate was related to the chemical composition uh, of the culture medium, the environment. And all of a sudden, oh, my God, here I am teaching that genes control life. And the results of the experiments was revealed, no, the environment is controlling it, not the genes. Uh, uh, and this led me on a whole new path to understand something. And so if I want to put this now into perspective in regard to human, a very quick segue is – Okay, uh, cells in a Petri dish fed synthetic blood, culture medium. Uh, the fate of the cell is controlled by the composition of the culture medium. And I say, now, 
remember, a human is made out of 50 trillion cells. So, like, in a humorous way, a human body is a skin-covered Petri dish with 50 trillion cells inside. I go, yes, and there's the original culture medium, blood. I go, yeah, that's the culture medium inside your skin-covered dish. And I go, it doesn't make a difference if the cell is in the plastic dish or the skin dish, irregardless of that. Its fate is determined on the basis of the culture medium in the plastic dish. The one I made in your own skin-covered dish is the blood. And I say the chemical composition of the blood is controlling the behavior in the genetics. I go, well, this is really important because the genes aren't controlling it. It's the chemical composition of the blood. Then I have to ask the question, of course, what controls the chemistry of the blood? And I go, well, the nervous system. And then comes the final piece that says, oh, my God, and that is this. So what chemicals should the nervous system put into the blood? I go, it's based on the environment and our interpretation of the environment, our perception, what we, what we experience. I say, what does that mean? I said, your mind does an interpretation of the world, and that interpretation is translated by the brain into chemistry, a complementary chemistry. It's sort of like paint by numbers in reverse, where you uh, paint by numbers, you get an outline of an image, and it's all carved up in little fragments, and there are numbers inside each fragment, and there's a number that connects to a paint. And when you take that particular paint and fill in the spaces, and then you put all the spaces filled in, you get a final picture, paint by numbers. Uh, biology is almost like paint by numbers in reverse. First, you put the picture in your mind. Then the brain breaks it down into numbers, which in this case are neurochemicals, hormones, things like that, and then releases those uh, uh, numbers, chemicals, into the blood, and the body takes on the shape of whatever the mind's picture was. It's like, oh, my God, we're not victims of our genetics. We, we control our genetics with our mind. Uh, uh, and it's really interesting because, well, that sounds kind of weird in a second. I go, well, look, what is the placebo effect? Well, the placebo effect is you're ill. Doctor says, I have this great brand new medicine. This is the medicine that's going to heal you. You get to really believe like, oh, this is a special medicine. And you take the medicine, you get well, and you find out the pill was a sugar pill. Well, you're left with a very important point. Is that, well, what, what made you well? Well, obviously not a sugar pill. It was belief in the sugar pill that made you well. You changed your genetics. You changed your biology with a change of the picture. A picture of wellness. I'm going to take this pill and I'm going to be well. The picture of wellness, then the body took that picture, translated it, and guess what? You got healed. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, mind over matter. And everyone's familiar with that. And I just want to make an important point before I let you talk. <laughs> and that is, uh, well, a placebo effect is the result of healing from a very positive thinking. Uh, the question is, well, does negative thinking have an effect? And the answer is, and this is the most profound point, negative thinking is equally powerful in shaping our experience as is positive thinking, but it works in the opposite direction. A positive thought can heal us from any disease, and this is the one that's important, a negative thought can cause any disease, even death. And all of a sudden it says, well, oh my God, I've been programmed to believe I'm a victim of my genes turning on and off. I go, no, no, you are the master 
except that your programs as children uh, may create an image that is not what you really wish and desire and your life becomes what your program is. And, and this is like a wake-up call. Why? Well, if I'm creating this and I'm creating something I don't like, then the idea was, oh, but that means there's some program in your mind that's creating that. And it takes the world of responsibility to a different level. It's not that the outside world is controlling who you are. You are controlling the outside world in this sense. Uh, and we are creating. Uh, and then you go, wow, that's so new agey. <laughs> and I go, no, no, nope. This is a whole new science called epigenetics, and it also deals with quantum physics. And both of these sciences, in different ways, reveal the same conclusion. Our consciousness is creating our biology and our life experiences. And that's the, the heart of quantum physics itself. So it's like, oh, wow, this is not just new age idea. This is the core of science today that we are creating this. And if we don't like the creation, it's not an outside issue, it's an inside issue where we must understand our own programming. Whew, now it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I have, you, you bring up so many questions in my mind, but I know too that when you were first presenting this and you published your research article, I mean, this really wasn't well received by your colleagues, by science, I think, wasn't it in the 1990s that epigenetics was finally kind of like coined? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it so what took so long? It was an official recognition. Science, you know, they're, they're very conservative. They, you operate, uh, you know, a multi-billions of dollars, trillion dollars on genetic engineering and, and uh, you know, industrial agriculture, and you think you're doing the right thing. And then you find out that the science says, no, you're not really doing the right thing. But then those investors that put all this money in are like, wow, yeah, but we put all this money into it. And they restrict the evolution, because they have the money to control the consciousness. Uh, and so it's taken a long time. I saw epigenetics first, 1967, and science recognized epigenetics as a field in 1990. The, the preceding year, so the first part was uh, everyone looked at me and go, oh, you, oh, Lipton, your work is just an artifact. It's not real. Something, you know, it's like, obviously, it's not real. We all know that genes control life, and your work shows that's not true. Well, you're the only one. <laughs> so uh, we all collectively agree over here that genes control life. So the, the work was rejected uh, by colleagues as being relevant. To me, it was like, are you kidding me? This upturns the whole damn belief system. Uh, and uh, and the fact was, I, I even walked out of my university job. I had a, a tenured professorship at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. I was tenured faculty. And I realized, what a waste of time. My science is predictable, repeatable. Uh, it, it measures up to everything that, that says that this is a scientific reality, but Collectively, the opinion of those around were all investing their efforts into genes and genetic engineering. Uh, so I just walked out of the system. And in fact, I was in a very strange whole series of coincidences, which are not. Uh, I ended up at Stanford University School of Medicine later. And then repeated these experiments with much more sophisticated instrumentation uh, uh, and stuff that was available, boy, at Stanford. Uh, and and it got the same results and even in, increased in understanding of those results 
Uh, and then again, uh, this was <clears throat> the heart of uh, genetic engineering world. And, and so my research wasn't really uh, endorsed <laughs> by the mass population doing genetic engineering because it said, that's the wrong direction. And now we know it. And for me, well, I'm a happy guy. I'm a happy guy because when you understand the nature of the science, then you understand the nature of well, how if this is a science of how I'm creating, then uh, then if I understand this, I should be able to create this most beautiful life. It's funny because I understood the mechanisms right away as a scientist reviewing the cells and doing the cultures and doing all the studies. And, and I understood the mechanisms of, wow, it, it, this mechanism allows you to create a healthy, happy, wonderful life. And I got so excited by the mechanism as a scientist that I wanted to tell people, anyone who would listen, I'd gather some people together and say, let me tell you about this understanding, because if you understand this, you can have this fabulous life. And so I start to give the talk and then they'd cock their heads and look at me and go, you know, Lipton, your life doesn't look that good for a guy who says you know how to do this. Uh, and I realized that that was the biggest issue, is my conscious mind was aware of the science, the mechanics, the understanding, and all of this. But regardless of that advanced knowledge, my life was still being run by my subconscious programs, which I had to learn. That was where it was coming from. And the subconscious was running off of old beliefs. So my conscious mind had great beliefs, but my life was being programmed by the original programming in my subconscious. Uh, and as a result, even though I was aware of this, oh my God, I can create this beautiful life. I wasn't experiencing it. And that's when it hit me when I, when those audiences, you know, looked at me and said, yeah, well, for guys says you know how to make a good life yours is not a great example uh i realized oh my god i have to not talk this i have to walk this and i had to learn about my subconscious and then how to program and the result of oh my god the revolution in my entire life the amazing life part one life part two uh, that resulted from this actually is expressed in in one of the books called the honeymoon effect and the honeymoon effect is what? Well, what happens when, when people uh, fall in love, you know, head over heels in love? I go, look, up to that day, they could every day there could be blah, blah, blah. My life is blah, blah, blah every day. And then you meet this person. And 24 hours later, it's like you're so head over heels in love. And guess what? It's heaven on earth. Everything is wonderful. The food's better. The music's better. Everything's better. Why am I so in love and all this kind of stuff? And it's like, wow, you have blah, blah, blah your whole life. And then 24 hours later, you got heaven on earth. That's pretty amazing. Uh, and it turned out uh, it's an example of what happens when you stop playing the programs and start creating with your conscious mind, which is wishes and desires. And when two people fall in love and start creating from wishes and desires, they created heaven on earth. Uh, it unfortunately disappears shortly after because um, the reason it works, you stop playing the program because you stop defaulting to subconscious control, which is 95% of the day for the average person. So all of us right now, wherever we're sitting, 95% of our life is coming from programs in the subconscious. Uh, as compared to the control uh, uh, with the conscious mind, which is wishes and desires. And I say, well, what happened when you fall in love? I say, oh, you stopped playing the programs and you started just creating from wishes and desires. And what would you create? Heaven on earth. I go, oh, my God, that's always there. 
the problem is it disappears when you default back to the subconscious and all of a sudden the old life comes back in because those are the programs that, that you got off the ground with and they're the ones that run your life. So it became to my awareness is like, wow, by rewriting the program so that my program support my wishes and desires rather than conflict with them, then all of a sudden wishes and desires were manifesting everywhere in my life. And uh, it's come to the to this extreme uh, a bit of my own personal cosmic joke consciousness is that <clears throat> we've been all programmed with the belief that, well, you live your life on this planet. And if you do really, really good, you get to go to heaven after you die. And once I started realizing like the honeymoon effect is what creating heaven on Earth it's like, oh, my God, we were born into heaven. It's our programming that takes us away from this. The moment you let go of the programming, it turns back into heaven again. It's like, oh, my God, the joke. You don't die and go to heaven. You're born here because this is where we become creators. We are creating our life experiences. But as I said, unfortunately, 95% is coming from programming, uh, most of which uh, is disempowering and negative uh, and, and came from other people. And when you take your power back, the truth is it turns right into a honeymoon every day of your life. Just beautiful harmony. Don't even have to go out and work hard. Your subconscious will manifest this without you even making an effort. That's even the cooler part of it. Put the program into the subconscious, and the program runs 95% of the day. And guess what? All of a sudden, those programs manifest in front of your face. It's like, wow. <laughs> That's creation. So it's all about changing that reprogramming, because I know that I've heard you say many times that the universe is working with us. And, you know, it really can be the belief systems that shape our lives. But the mind has the ability to control, you know, the biology, which is the environment in which all of the cells live in, and that the gene is just a blueprint. It's like you were talking about earlier. This is not a death sentence where many of us have probably, you know, heard, let's take uh, breast cancer, for example. Oh, well, breast yes. ca cancer runs through the family. So I'm doomed. I have to get early checkups. Oh, um, God, I'm so sorry, because I know that is the, the consequence. Of course, what's a woman supposed to feel or experience the moment a doctor says, geez, I'm sorry, you're carrying the breast cancer one gene, the BRCA1, and all of a sudden every negative image of cancer, disease, death, and all of a sudden I say, well, if consciousness is controlling your life, the moment that was given to you a verdict on <laughs> your life, consciousness carries it to do what? Manifest the entire experience that you were afraid of. It's now going, because that's what you have on your mind. And, and you're so right. And, and I'm glad you brought up the BRCA1, Jamie, because I use that in my lectures. And I talk about, just as I just said, people believe genes control life and that if you possess this gene, my God, you're going to get the cancer. Uh, Angelina Jolie, whose mother and grandmother died from this BRCA1 gene, they believe. And then she finds out she carries the genes, ends up having a double mastectomy as preventative <laughs> behavior to prevent breast cancer by removing your breasts. It's like, wait a minute. First big error in your thinking Possession of the gene does in no way mean you get the cancer. 50% of the carriers of the BRCA1 gene never get the cancer. I said, well, why is it relevant? Because I say, you only talk about the ones that get the cancer. So BRCA1 causes cancer. I say, yeah, but 50% of them have the gene and never get the cancer. 
And I say, what is the significance, the fundamental conclusion of that fact? Possession of the gene does not mean cancer. That's exactly what the fact is all about. I say, well, then, oh, if the gene doesn't cause cancer, then what's the cause? I go, lifestyle and belief and programming. Uh, to the extent, uh, the, listen to this one fact and then you, you get it because we all believe, well, cancer is caused by cancer genes. There's no such thing as a cancer gene, first of all, meaning there is no gene. You have this gene, you get cancer. Their genes are correlated with cancer, but they don't cause cancer. BRCA1 is indeed associated with breast cancer, but it doesn't cause it. It is activated in response to a world that is out of harmony with your biology or your biology is out of harmony because of the world in which you live. Uh, and so uh, this little simple story uh, is like, wow, just get what it means. They followed the fate of children adopted into families where there's a cancer running in the family lineage. And it turns out the adopted child will get the same family cancer with the same probability as any of the natural siblings except the adopted child has completely different genetics. And what's the point? The cancer was transmitted not via the genes. It was transmitted through the programming and the behavior. And that runs in families. And all of a sudden, it's like, we've always said anything that runs in families must be the genes, because that's what is connecting one uh, set uh, of siblings to, the, to be parents to the next set, et cetera. And I go, yes, that's true. Genes are passed on. But epigenetics, the science of how environment and programming and consciousness control genes, all of a sudden says, oh, my God, then the behavior of the parents are as important as the genetics of the child because the programming provided by the parents epigenetically controls genes. And so it says, oh. I don't have to have a cancer gene. I just have to have a cancer mentality. <laughs> it's like, exactly. So this is, yes, go ahead. Tom. Yeah, so so this is a, a great lead-in because I've been wanting to ask you this question as we're talking about children and parents and then maybe even the way that our parents have been programmed and thinking about things because many times when I introduce people to your work, sometimes they'll come back at me with the argument, well, then, April, how does he explain children who are either born with birth defects or maybe they get diagnosed with cancer uh, within six to nine months of their life, well, they didn't have a chance to really think about all of this and uh, have a belief that they were going to, say, get cancer because they haven't even been on this earth that long. Okay, so, you're ready for this one because this is a I'm, very important question. This is very important. <laughs> and, and the question is this. Before epigenetics, and I was teaching in a medical school, and we get into reproduction, and we say, well, what's the role of a mother? Well, you first start with the premise that genetics are going to control the development of the fetus. So the mother's not involved with that. The role of the mother is to provide nutrition. I say, great, that is it. So uh, what do we suggest mothers do? Eat well, take vitamins and supplements, exercise, all to do what? Improve, improve the blood and the circulation for nutrition. And then we get into the science of the new science called epigenetics, which said information in the blood or culture medium, the information uh, uh, controls the genetics. I go, well, wait a minute. So the mother is nourishing the child with her blood. And I go, absolutely. And I say, and she's also providing the emotional chemistry, the hormones, the growth factors, the neuroregulators that are regulating her body uh, at the time. That's what her blood is doing, regulating all of her functions of her body. 
that that information is also passed along to the fetus. Of course, it's not the fetus isn't just getting the nutrition, it's getting the information. And the relevance about that is parents, unbeknownst to them because no one ever gave them an understanding, are genetic engineers, actually officially epigenetic engineers, because the environmental information in the blood is what controls the genes. And if the mother's body is being prepared for a stressful world or not support or uh, no love or whatever her personal issues are, and she's having the physiological consequences, which can cause her to have a cancer, the same chemistry is being passed on to the fetus. It's not a consciousness that the fetus knows that the mother is struggling. Uh, It's an awareness of struggle because of the chemistry But the fetus has no idea what the mother's going through. It just knows the chemistry of stress uh, because that's what the mother's releasing. And and it's not that one event causes a problem. It's a pattern. If there's a pattern in a mother's behavior that causes a stressful situation, the fetus is learning a pattern. Uh, To try to, to illustrate that very quickly, I say, look, a song is comprised of music and lyrics. And I say, guess what? The emotional chemistry that flows in the body in pattern is music. It's the chemistry of the feelings. And I say, the child learns the music while a fetus and through the first seven years of life, uh, it's also doing the same thing. But especially as a fetus, it's learning the music of life from where? The mother's blood, whatever she's playing in her blood, that music, that emotion, those chemicals are being learned by the fetus. So the fetus is like humming the tune, but there are no words. Why? The fetus isn't engaged in the world, doesn't know anything, just has the music. But once it's born, (laughs) then the lyrics start being applied to that particular music that was already pre-recorded. So there's a carryover from the mother. Uh, and I don't want to put the weight on the mother for a very simple reason. It's my God, if the father screws up, it changes the mother's chemistry for sure. Uh, and so why is it relevant? Both parents have to recognize that they're, if they're not in harmony, if they're not living in love, uh, if they don't see security and peace in their world, the fetus is having that same experience at the same time, not knowing the details, but surely knowing the feelings of being safe or not safe, uh, under threat, pain, all these things. Why? Because the mother signals are, uh, are going straight to the child. Uh, and you might think, well, why would nature do that? And then I go, it's nature's head start program. Meaning, when this fetus is born, it's going to live in the world. I say, yeah, but what are the conditions of the world when it's being born? Because uh, a child born in wartime, uh, it depends on, on the biology of that child is going to survive the war versus if a child is born in peacetime, that's a different mentality. And all of a sudden it says, oh my goodness, if there's a war situation going on and the mother's aware of the war situation, the chemistry of that perception, uh, which is a stress chemistry, changes the physiology and genetic activity of the fetus to make a street fighter. That's absolutely true. A child's uh, intelligence can be compromised of up nearly 50%. Uh, when the mother is living in a war environment uh, because the energy doesn't build the intelligence. Now it builds what? A body. For what? <laughs> Street fighting. If, the bo- if this baby's going to survive in a war environment, uh, having a big brain may not be helpful. Having big brawn could be very helpful. So the genetics of the child epigenetically, environmentally controlled with the mother perceiving the world means that this child's going to live in that same world. 
Now, if there's a real war, then of course this is going to be a benefit to the child. But if there's a perception or the feeling of fear of the war, imagination about the war, it's not even real. The fetus doesn't know it's not real. It's just getting the same chemistry as the mother would have had if it was a real war. So um, what happens to a child, number one, is that a child comes in and the programming starts uh, early uh, in the early development of the fetus. Why? The, the, once it starts using the mother's blood for nutrition, it's also using the mother's blood for information. And that information epigenetically is what controls the genes. And I want to add a second possibility because when I wasn't spiritual, I couldn't offer this possibility. I am spiritual not by religious devotion, but by quantum physics, actually. So uh, uh, what I started to recognize is this, is that we're immortal beings. We're, we're actually an energy in what is called in the physics called the field. Uh, and the field exists continuously while physical bodies come and go. So we're uh, an energy in the field. And I said, well, what does that mean? Well, our consciousness doesn't die when the body dies. We're the, we're the consciousness is an energy, not a physical thing. And I go, well, why is this relevant? And the answer is this, because if a, uh, when I show the molecular nature of how our own personal identity is coming into our body and not into the person sitting next to you, each of us is receiving a unique broadcast frequency, just like a different radio station on the band. As you turn the dial and you go from one radio station to the next radio station, there's this giant consciousness radio station where each of us is a station and each of us has a frequency. And, and the relevance about that is uh, for a body to connect to this frequency, it has to have a set of what are called self-receptors, receivers of self. Uh, and the significance is if I physically die and my body no longer is receiving the transmission of my identity, then I'm just an energy in the field. But if another embryo shows up, with the same set of antennas, self-receptors, I'm back online in a different body. It doesn't make a difference if bodies, male or female, black, white, red, yellow. That, that's the body, the television set, more or less. And I'm the broadcast, so the television, the broadcast. It doesn't make a difference what television is. It's the broadcast that's being received. So this is called reincarnation. And the significance about reincarnation means, oh, my God, we don't have just one life. We can keep coming back and again and again and again anytime an embryo shows up with the same set of receptors. And no two people have the same set of receptors. So I say, why is it relevant? I say, well, if you have hundreds, thousands of lives and we're all part of this consciousness community in, in the ether uh, and we're all part of helping one another in a long term sense of it. And then I say, well, what if on one of your trips to Earth, where you get into this body, you come in to help somebody else learn something, and you sacrifice yourself in the process. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, if you have thousands and thousands of lives, and you know, giving one for learning and teaching is like, okay, sure, that's part of my effort and community. So a baby comes in as a spiritual entity to do what maybe get sick, to do what? It alters the people all around, the parents, the community, the hospital. It's, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity of teaching something. So if a child gets sick, I say, why? I say, well, A, it could be epigenetically produced just by the experiences and programming and responses of the mother to the world. B, it could be because the entity that's going to come into this body 
came in with a purpose and mission as a teacher and has compromised uh, by saying, I sacrifice this for your learning experience and I'll come back in another body soon. <laughs> so uh, how can a child have these issues? Uh, either because of the uh, of the programming while uh, a physical body or even because of the intention of a spirit behind it. Well, and this wasn't a question that I planned on asking, but since we're on this topic here um, of consciousness and kind of evolving um, over time through our experiences here, let's say somebody is consciously, as an adult, working on the old programming, right? And the child has already been born, they're growing up, but you have a mother or father that's working hard to rewire their own programming and really come into more of this love-based understanding of consciousness. And as they begin to shift their consciousness, um, does that also then affect their children? Even though we were initially talking about when the baby's growing within the mother, but if we begin to change and we are energy and we're consciousness and our consciousness change, does that then trickle down to our family members, to our children, to those that we're connected with? This will automatically occur if the child is under seven years of age because the okay. child tunes in and is uh, in a st brain state called theta, which is when you put EEG wires on a person's head and read brain function. Theta is the predominant activity of a child under seven. Uh, it's connected with imagination. That's why children can ride a broom, but it's not a broom. When they're riding it, they're on a horse. It's anything they can imagine is real. If the mother says, give me the broom, the child's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's a horse at this point. Point. or a tea party where there's no tea and everybody's pouring empty cups and drinking empty cups. That's a character of theta, but theta is hypnosis. And this is how we get our programming. Uh, and you say, well, why should we have programming? This is a very important point. Why should we have programming? I say, uh, you can if you're conscious, but you have nothing to be conscious of, then nothing's going to happen. It's sort of like uh, you, you go to the Apple store, you buy a brand new iPod, and on the front of the iPod is a touchscreen like on the iPhone and all that. And the touchscreen is creative. I can create a playlist of my music, adjust the volume, and rewind, fast forward, change all kinds of characteristics. I'm creative when I'm touching the touchscreen. So I get the brand new iPod, I take it out of the box, and on the touchscreen I push play, and nothing happens. Now, you know, here's this old dinosaur Lipton saying, oh, my God, I just spent all this money. Damn thing isn't even working. And then a little seven-year-old kid walks up and says, hey, mister, did you download any music? I go, no. And he says, well, how can you play anything if you didn't download anything? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God. In order for the iPod to work, first I have to put the programs in. Then I can be creative using the program. And I go, this is exactly the same thing that happens in a mind. A conscious mind cannot be creative unless they're programmed. So nature created the first seven years theta as a hypnotic state where a child can download the programs necessary to be a functional member of a family and a community. And I say, well, how many programs is that? And I go, my God, thousands of programs of how to be a functional, how to behave appropriately in your culture. And how, you know, I mean, think like how a father talks to his own child is different than he talks to the neighbor's child. It's different how he talks to the adult neighbor. It's different how he talks to the mother. It's different how he talks to the policeman. Every one of those is a behavioral program. I say, just imagine how many of those a child must learn to become functional. And you realize Oh, my God, it would take books and books to do this. And I go, okay, nature said eliminate the books by what? You can download the behavior by observing those around you. 
And that's how we do it. So we download first seven years. These set up the programs. Consciousness kicks in around seven. Then we can engage those programs. Then we find out from biology and parenting that 70% of the average person's downloaded programs are disempowering, self-sabotaging, and limiting. It's like, holy God, we're we're getting some bad driver education here at this moment. Uh, and the problem is, yeah, well, then get conscious and then use that bad driver education program and see how effective your driving is. And the answer is, oh, my God, you'll always be a bad driver. Uh, and the issue is, oh, my God. Um, the programs that we got are controlling our life. Science has recognized and emphasis that 95% of our behavior, uh, our cognitive mind-controlling behavior, 95% comes from the subconscious programs. 5% come from the conscious mind. I say, oh, wait, the subconscious is like the habits. It's got just programs in it. Push the button, play the program. What's conscious mind? I go, oh, creative. Conscious mind is connected to your unique identity, your spirituality, your creativity. I go, oh, so if I'm using my conscious mind running my biology, then I experience creativity, wishes, and desires. I go, absolutely. And I go, but how come I, I don't experience this day to day? And science says, because when the conscious mind is thinking, it stops paying attention to the outer world. Very important point. A thought is inside your head. So if I say, oh, what are you doing next Wednesday at 2 o'clock, and all of a sudden uh, you start to contemplate it, I say, well, where's your consciousness now? At that moment, it's looking inside your head for an answer, what I'm doing next week. I go, oh, wait, if the conscious mind just went inside to look for an answer, then who's controlling where you are and what's going on in the world around you? You're driving the car. You have a thought. Your conscious mind lets go of the wheel and goes inside your head. Who the heck is driving the car? And the answer is subconscious, by definition, is autopilot. Whatever functions you stop paying attention to in the outer world, the subconscious being the habit mind knows how to do those functions, drive the car, walk talk to somebody, do your job, anything that you created by habit doesn't need you to think about it. It can run automatically with a much more powerful subconscious mind. So conclusion of all this words here at this moment, it turns out how much of the day is being created by conscious mind, which are your wishes and your desires, and how much of the day is being controlled by your subconscious programs, mainly downloaded from other people, and the answer is 5% from conscious, 95% from program. I go, oh my God, if 70% of our subconscious programs are disempowering and is working 95% of the day, that mathematics says, man, you're not likely to experience your wishes and desires, and I go, absolutely. And this is why people struggle in a world where they're creators. And I go, oh, my God, we've been playing these programs. They've been taking away from our life. And you see, the first thing you would think, well, naturally, well, if I was playing a negative program, I'd be aware I was playing a negative program. And I go, no, you won't for a reason. Why are you playing the program? Answer conscious mind's not paying attention. It's inside looking for some thought, working on a thought. I go, oh. Well, then the conscious mind, by definition, cannot see the program when it's playing. I go, yes, that's the truth. And I go, why is it relevant? Well, if you are playing a sabotaging behavior and you can't see it, then guess what? You just sabotage your life with no understanding you were the one that did it. Because you would imagine if you can't see it, I wouldn't sabotage myself, my conscious mind says. I go, sure, your conscious mind wouldn't do it, but you weren't operating from your conscious mind. And all of a sudden, say, oh, my God, my life is being controlled by these programs. And I go, 
the Jesuits for 400 years knew this truth that science has just really come across, and that is the Jesuits said for 400 years, give me a child, and until it is seven, and I will show you the man. And what do they know? First seven years is programming. The rest of the life, 95%, is going to come from that program. So whatever program you put in, that's what you're going to manifest. And it's like, oh, my God. People knew we were programmed. <laughs> and they guess what they did? They programmed the power out. <laughs> they disempowered us with negative programming so we think we're like powerless victims in this world when the programming is taking away the power that's all it is and if you get out of the program you become the creative power and i go this is precisely what happens when somebody falls deeply in love and their life is blah 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 they meet this person 24 hours later it's heaven on earth i say what happened they stopped playing the program and then started creating what they would have done if they didn't have the program and i go oh my god we are these creators, and yet the filters that we're creating through are disempowering us, so we struggle. And guess what? You eliminate those programs or rewrite them to better programs, the struggle in life disappears. The health issues in life disappear because these are not derived from the genes and our biology. These are derived from a higher level of consciousness. And then I revert right back to quantum physics. In quantum physics, the main principle of quantum physics is it's all consciousness. And quantum physics being the most valid science in the world, that's not even arguable. It is all consciousness by science. And then you say, well, whose consciousness is running it? 5% yours. 95% program. And when you see that, it's like, huh? I changed the program. I can create heaven on earth. And I go, precisely. And it works. And it's fabulous. Well, now if we kind of move on from that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the practical application of all of this. Because, you know, the things that I hear you saying is repetition, uh, theta waves, uh, hypnosis. And so a person like myself, who's kind of on the ground working with people one-on-one -on -one, doing energy yes. healing, hypnosis, teaching meditation classes. Um, you know, there was a documentary that you were in, uh, that I recently watched called heal. Uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza was in it and he gave, um, a good example of how he used meditation and repetition to really recreate his spine and to heal. So, how much repetition does this take to eventually change the programming and for us to really start to have that subconscious mind that is more in that state of love and in a happier place than when we first started? So how, how, do I, how much time do I have to work with people or what is the best way that people can start with the repetition and getting into the theta waves, whether it's by bar, binaural beats or working with a hypnotherapist, but what is the practical application that people can use in their everyday life to begin to change this? Uh, the first thing is to recognize the problem we've always had is when we connect the conscious mind to subconscious mind, we unify them and say the mind. And the first thing I have to say is that we, so we clear the base here and what we're understanding is 
the mind consists of two interdependent elements, conscious mind, subconscious mind. Why I have to distinguish them is because each has a different function and each has a different way of learning. And that's where the problem comes from because if you say they're both the same, you say, well, I read the self-help book for damn well, I should be much better. And I go, well, you may get 100 on a test of what was in the book. Your life probably didn't change because... The conscious mind being creative can learn by reading a book, listening to a, a, you know an audio like this, watching a video, go to a lecture, uh, and being a creative mind. Conscious mind go, aha, I have a new idea, and, and the conscious mind now will entertain it. Subconscious mind is the habit mind. I go, why is it relevant? Well, in creating a habit, the idea, of course, if you want to create a good habit, is once it's created, you don't have to learn it anymore. You learn how to ride a bicycle? Fine. Once you learn how to ride a bicycle, you know how to ride a bicycle. You learn how to walk before you were two. Most people, uh, for the rest of their lives, 100 years, never had to relearn how to walk. So subconscious is great. It makes habits. A characteristic of habits is resistance to change. Because if your habit would change, then all of a sudden it's not a habit anymore. So the subconscious mind being the seat of habits has to learn the way habits are created and can only be changed by the way habits are created. Uh, and, uh, and so how are habits created? The first seven years, the habits occur through hypnosis because the child's brain is operating at the low vibrational frequency we mentioned, theta, uh, which is hypnosis. So the child learns not even by, uh, by doing any effort. The child just observes whatever it is, and it's like a video recorder. Whatever the behavior was is now downloaded into the child's subconscious. Uh, very important point. The conscious is not active at this time. So... If it's a good program downloaded or a bad program downloaded, uh, the conscious mind has no recognition of the nature of the program. The conscious mind is not working. So uh, that's why we can get like up to 70% very negative programs. And the conscious mind has no idea they're even in there or they're negative. So we download these programs through hypnosis. That's the first seven years. After age seven, the new programs that come in, as you mentioned, were through repetition. Habituation is basically it. Repeating. You practice something, anything. You want to drive the car, you got to practice driving the car. You, you want to do the times table in the math class, you have to repeat it to yourself over and over again, and then you get it. Uh, so repetition is the second process of putting a habit into the mind. Um, there's a third way we'll talk about a little bit, uh, but let's say these two, you want to use these two. I go, does that mean you have to have a hypnotherapist? I go, well, first of all, no. And it's a very simple reason. Um, uh, a brain uh, has many levels of vibrational activity. The lowest is delta, which is sleeping. The next uh, highest is theta. That's imagination, hypnosis. The next highest is alpha vibration, which is calm consciousness. And the next higher one up is beta vibration, which is like focus, schoolroom, focus consciousness. And I go, so in an adult stage, we have all these activities. You were in beta during the job, high focus consciousness. You come home, you start to relax after you get home, you spring the vibration down, now you're calming into alpha, which is calm consciousness. And then when you're ready to go to bed, at the moment consciousness alpha disconnects, the brain is now in theta, and it's going to slow down and ultimately turn into delta, which is the outright sleep. But I say, why is it relevant? There's a period where your subconscious mind is operating after your conscious mind disconnects. So the conscious mind falls asleep, 
the next period of time, your brain is in theta. And I say, well, why is it relevant? Because any information coming into the head at that point is not going through consciousness, but it's going straight into subconscious programming. So people put on earphones, and this is a very important way of doing it. It's called self-hypnosis. You put on earphones as you're going to bed, and you have a program play uh, uh, you know, CD or whatever the heck memory say, I don't care, you know, it used to be tapes, but now that date myself to programming <laughs> tapes. Uh, uh, and I say, well, what's in these programs? Well, they're, they're belief statements that you would like to have positive statements, present tense belief statements that play when your conscious mind just disconnected. So your conscious mind doesn't even hear what the day, what's on the program. Subconscious is hearing it. And you play this every night for a short period of time and guess what unconsciously you're now downloading this program without even any conscious effort why conscious minds disconnected it's already sleeping this is now the mechanism rewriting its program using theta so that's self-hypnosis and it gives you an opportunity to pick out a program that uh, reflects what you would like to have in your life and you're not experiencing so these self-help programs are available that wherever places are, whatever they are, because I don't buy them. But I presume uh, bookstores and things like that and uh, Amazon and all these places. Uh, so that is phase one. And that's a simple phase. Why? Because it doesn't take any effort on the part of the person because they're essentially sleeping when the process is going on anyway. Outside of that self-hypnosis, then we can use the repetition. But the repetition has to be like real repetition. It's like, uh, you know, if you're going to play a sport, there's practice every night at 5 o'clock and you show up after school and you practice. And I say, oh, well, that, that's a habit that you create. Uh, I want to distinguish it from what I call the sticky note. The sticky note, you write a message, you stick it on the mirror. And I go, that's really nice. One day you walk by the mirror and go, oh, yeah, there's that sentence, fine. And you walk away and I go, this is not repetition. It's no exercise at all. That's just a suggestion. Uh, repetition is an effort. You have to put an effort into reprogramming. Uh, and the, one of the, things, the little caveats of a program is it cannot be a future-oriented program. I will. It shall happen. It, you know, like a future thing. All programs have to be in the present tense as if it happened right now already is there. Not I uh, will be healthy or I will become healthy. I am healthy. Even if you're sick as a dog, <laughs> the phrase is I am healthy because the uh, subconscious mind takes everything literally and the function of the mind is to create that reality. So when there's a new program in there, the mind will do the program. I just want to emphasize why it has to be in present tense is simple. Record the following. I will be healthy. And I say, great. Now I say, come back in a year and let's play the recording. I will be healthy. And I say, oh, what day is it when you do become healthy? <laughs> and all of a sudden you realize you didn't program healthy. You only program a future that could be healthy. So you don't say, I will be healthy. You say, I am healthy. I am am lovable. I am worthy. I, uh, you know, I could, I am this, I am that. that. That's an important caveat because that's how the mind works. So I say, okay, you repeat these statements over and over again. You know, I, I love it because there's a, a humorous phrase that says, fake it till you make it. And basically it says that. It says you could be the most miserable person in your life every day. is, oh, my God, this is miserable. And I say, and what will you do? And I say, 
every day you just repeat on and off during the day. I am happy. I am happy. And, and like when you look at it, it's like you're saying I am happy and you're really miserable. I say keep saying I am happy because repetition will cause I am happy to become a statement in the subconscious. And then the function of the mind is to take a program and manifest it. So if your program is I am happy and it's in the system, guess what? Your unconscious mind will assure you of happiness without your conscious mind making an effort to get there because 95% of the day, the program I am happy will be playing and the subconscious mind will create a reality that matches the program. And that's how we, we do it. And how long will it take? I can't say how long it takes because the moment I say how long it takes, then all of a sudden it says, I just made a time. And I said, no, it's creative. I, I can't tell you how long it takes. It's for you. It, it could take a while, a short period, a long period. You know, some people said, oh, it takes 21 days to make a habit. Well, if you believe that, then in 21 days that habit will happen uh, and so again that's part of the belief system as well now the last thing I want to add here is that well those are the two conventional ways the, lion, the mind learns there's another way that can be elicited that is the most amazing experience on this planet uh, and it's called super learning What's super learning? Well, I can give you an example. If you've seen anybody in a bookstore, they can read a book by moving their finger down the page. As fast as the finger moves down the page is as fast as you read the page with super learning. So it's a way of, of downloading information immediately in a sense. Um, and if you can gauge this super learning, you can write a new belief program to rewrite a negative belief program. That's that's how you do it. You don't eliminate a negative belief program. You have to rewrite it so that the same stimulus leads to a different outcome than the stimulus is leading to today. A stimulus comes in, I go negative. I say, no, the same stimulus is there, so you have to write a program that when that stimulus shows up, I go this way, positive. So you can't just say, I'm not going to pay attention to this, this program that, that it's not a choice that runs automatically. So the only thing you can do is rewrite a program. And I say using these energy psychology modalities, there's a whole number of them. Uh, on my website, BruceLipton.com, there's under resources, uh, I think 25 or more different versions of, uh, of this energy psychology relevance. And this is like, okay, blow your mind. Uh, in many of these processes, you can rewrite a belief that's affected you your whole life in about 10 minutes. It's like, oh, my God, uh, I wouldn't have believed it until I experienced it and saw people experience it and saw people training and then having other people experience it. And I realized, oh, my God, this is not a, uh, you know, a, a joke. This is this is real. It's not anecdotal. It's repeatable. Why is it relevant? Nature is facing a crisis where we have to change our behaviors. Otherwise, we won't survive. And so uh, necessity being the mother invention shows up with a, uh, a new psychology, energy psychology, which will allow us to rapidly change because the, the planet is asking us to do that. Because if we don't radically change, uh, human extinction is within a century. And with what you just said, I mean, I could give a great example that happened yesterday in a session that I had with one of my clients with uh, an energy psychology technique they call tapping. Um, yes. I had a person that was really struggling with some sexual abuse and is really trying to work through that trauma. And as we were applying the tapping technique, we were affirming affirmations and one that really um, shifted and changed uh, the whole demeanor of the client 
in the session was when we were saying, I am not damaged. I am not damaged because of the sexual abuse. And yeah. you could see the emotion well up. And then so we repeated that, repeated that, repeated that over and over until I could see her nervous system start to calm down a little bit. And, you know, we went through some other affirmations. And then at the end, um, you know, I said, well, how are you feeling? She had wrote a letter to um, the perpetrator and the letter was very um, written in a state of powerlessness. And then after we applied this energy psychology technique and then repeating over and over over that she's not damaged just because she was sexually abused, she came out and was like a different person and really had that hope and that belief that, um, and feeling much stronger, like she was not the victim and that she is okay just because this happened to her doesn't mean that she is totally messed up for the rest of her life. And, you know, that was a session of about 45 minutes, but the tapping portion of it was about 15. So, I mean, I, and, and like you said, it being repeatable, I've seen this over and over and over again, uh, with applying some of these techniques. So. Tapping is a, is a wonderful experience because it's called pattern interrupt. Your mind is wandering, as I said, by its own programming 95% of the day. And if she has that negative experience, that means 95% of the day, even if her conscious mind doesn't want to pay attention to it, the subconscious mind is getting engaged. And once it starts to really take over, then the person feels out of control because, my God, this is running and I'm almost like a victim in my own skin uh, as this is happening. Uh, and then when you do tapping, it stops the pattern right there. The conscious mind all of a sudden says, wait, stop, stop. And all of a sudden, the pattern stops. And while you're in that process, that's when your work was, let's put a different program into this thing. And, and when she repeats this process, it will become, that's the new way of life. Uh, and, and so to me, it's totally important to recognize that Look, uh, you, you can do the uh, self-hypnosis, and that's simple. It doesn't require anything. Anything It requires you to go to sleep. <laughs> so that's easy. Uh, and, uh, and you can do the repetition. That's a, that's a conscious effort involved as well. But the energy psychology modalities are, well, they're a conscious effort, but they're very brief. And I think this is really what people have to understand. And uh, and let me just uh, this is let me add this as an important insight because we talked about the fact. Yes, the first seven years of our life is programming. It actually starts in the last trimester of pregnancy, even before you're born, and for seven years you are in this programmable state. Okay, uh, and and it's really important to recognize that um, these behaviors are, uh, um, are affecting your life. And you say, well, what behaviors are they? Because obviously. Obviously, if I say, uh, and listen, tell me, what did you learn when you were zero? You go, what? <laughs> I have no idea. What was, how about one? Well, no, I still don't have any idea. So most of the programming occurred before there was even any awareness you were being programmed. So a person might be stuck at this moment and says, oh, my God, my life is being run by these programs. But I don't even know what these programs are, 95%. And I go, well, that's the fun part. And fun meaning this. 95% of your life is coming from the subconscious mind. The point is, your life is essentially a printout of your programs. So instead of going to uh, you know, a lot of psychological analysis about what my program is, I simply say this. Whatever you like that comes into your life easily comes in because you have a program that acknowledges that. But, and the big but... Whatever you desire, wish, or want in your life, and you have to work hard at it, struggle over it, sweat over it, put tremendous amount of effort to try to manifest this, first important question, why are you working so hard to get to this destination? 
answer. Inevitably, that destination is not supported by your program. So all of a sudden, you have to just look at your life and say, what am I struggling that I can't find? I say, uh, that destination, if you could put it in a positive thing, health, I am healthy, or I am wealthy, or whatever that program is, uh, that's what you want, and you're struggling to get it. You know which program you want to put in, and again, emphasizing, it has to be put in uh, as if it already existed, that you have what you want right now. Uh, it's not I will or shall have. I am or it is right now. Uh, and when you put those programs in, uh, then your whole life will change upside down. Uh, and this is really what's necessary. So I said, well, identify the programs by just looking at your struggles and recognize a struggle is not the result of an outside world trying to get in your way. It's almost inevitably the result of your inside program unconsciously sabotaging you because your conscious mind didn't see the behavior. And that's, that's it right there. And when you change new life and here's the fun part there is a fun part ultimately and that is this once the program's in the subconscious mind you never have to do it again you never even have to think about it again it's automatic it's working 95 percent of the day without you even making an effort cool that makes it even more fun it says once i get the program in i can let go of even thinking about it great well thank you bruce so much for your time um i know that we're coming to a close here but i wanted to give you just an opportunity to answer the last question which yes. is what is next for you and you know where do you take your research from here what else what else do you have for us <laughs> well there's a whole lot of new stuff unfolding in biology uh, uh, revelations about things that we didn't know and about and why are they important because knowledge is power a lack of knowledge is a lack of power, and misinformation is a lack of knowledge, so misinformation is disempowering. And I say, well, we have been programmed with beliefs that are no longer accurate, and there's new ideas coming in, and the whole idea is this. If people get empowered, then they are free to create. And if an individual, just the average individual, is given the freedom to create, Almost everybody will create on the same basis. They're all looking for peace, love, support, uh, you know, safety. They're all about the same natural needs. And, and so as each individual gets empowered, there's another person supporting a better world and a better environment and a better creation. So my, my efforts are... Can I go out there and help people say, listen, take your power back. It's so much more fun than living off the crummy program. Uh, and uh, so my efforts are to just to continue to reach the public, to empower them so that they can have charge over their lives and not be the victim of other people's programming. Great. Well, I hope all of you listening feel very empowered by this discussion today. And Bruce, it really was an honor. Thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to be a guest on our podcast today. I am so honored to be here with you. And, uh, and the part that I really like is uh, your audience, by definition, would be what? Creative people, cultural creatives looking for answers that are not in the box. Uh, and the relevance is the answers are actually not in the box. We have to step out of the current vision and recognize there's a, a, a new world happening right there just by changing our mind. And uh, so thank you for the opportunity to talk to this wonderful community. Well, thank you. And I'm sure they are all clapping in the background and thanking <laughs> you as well. 
Thanks, Bruce. Okay, thank you. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.